National Archives podcast series, Tithe Tales. What the Tithe survey records tell us about early Victorian place and society. Presented by Rose Mitchell. Thank you to all of you too for coming to this talk entitled Tithe Tales, what the Tithe survey records tell about early Victorian place and society. So the Tithe survey, this vast tax survey I'm going to talk about in this talk, dates from around 1840 and it was the most detailed study of land use and ownership since the Doomsday Book, which you can actually see downstairs in the museum on your way out. It's a fascinating and unique resource for social, local and family historians and reveals a wealth of information about people and place in Victorian society from Wordsworth and the Brontes to humbler folk, and from farmstead and village to factory and mine, and even Kew Gardens, as we shall see. The Thai survey records can show where people were living and who were their neighbours around the time of the earliest surviving census returns from 1841. The survey has the earliest large-scale maps for England and Wales, made before ordnance survey maps came into widespread use. They show a landscape undergoing change in modes of livelihood and transport. When turnpike roads and canals were still found, but railways were also cutting a swathe through the land. When traditional open fields and rural occupations survived, but the Industrial Revolution was also evident in the form of cotton mills and iron foundries. To measure up this talk, First, I'll explain how the survey was undertaken and the records made, how to find the records, what's in them, and also we're going to look at uh, records outside the main tithe survey, earlier and later records too, and uh, also records elsewhere. And in particular, I'll update you on access improvements by the National Archives and around the country, which are opening up research possibilities for you. So first of all, what were tithes and why was the survey needed? And uh, here's a picture from our Ministry of Works architectural drawing series from ancient monuments of the Bradford-on-Avon tithe barn. So the practice of tithing, which is familiar to us as the biblical tenth, was an ancient custom dating back to the ninth century in this country and it supported the local priest from the produce of the land. And traditionally, payments were made in kind. So every tenth basket of apples, fleece of wool, and bushel of wheat was given over. Tithe barns like these are an historic legacy in the landscape of this ancient custom, built centuries ago to store tithes in kind. So they would have been filled um, with wheat, corn, all sorts of farm produce. But there were problems with this system. Tithing was cumbersome and fraught with difficulties for those who paid the tax and those who collected it. So how could a clergyman know exactly how many eggs, for example, he was entitled to receive? So he'd always got the fear of being defrauded of an extra sheaf of corn or piglet, unless he sort of leant over the pen, as here. And tales were told of sheep farmers taking their ewes to the next parish at lambing time to avoid giving up lambs as tithe. The vicar, having collected all this, had got to deal with it, uh, and it was all perishable food, um, and in an era before refrigeration. Here's a 16th century map uh, showing tithes paid here. There's a wheat sheaf, and 
what it symbolises was how very much tithe was a given part of life at this time and its payment was part of the yearly round. This is from the area near Formby in Lancashire and is perhaps the most sort of graphic example um, of tithe appearing on even such early maps. In some places, payment was by money instead of in kind, which was called commutation. And it often happened as a byproduct of the enclosure acts of the late 18th century on. This is why few places have got both tithe and enclosure records. Enclosure only affected some areas, mainly in the Midlands, so most parishes were still paying tithes in kind by the early 19th century. This is a map of 1809 showing lands on which tithe was paid in Dorset. And this map was in exhibit in one of very many cases in the Court of Chancery, whose records are held here. The case involved the Earl of Shaftesbury's lands in Wimborne. Now, while maps such as this are rare, we do hold records of many court cases in disputes over tithes ranging from the 16th to the 19th centuries. So 10 centuries after tithe was introduced, it was thus a bone of contention and felt to be an unpopular anachronism by many people. It penalised farmers since manufactured goods were not subject to tithes and was resented by the growing body of nonconformists who'd got to support the established church as well as their own. It discouraged agricultural improvement since farmers risked capital and hard work only to then pay part of the resulting profit to tithe owners. But then, why would the government get involved? Because this seemed to be a dispute between the church and landowners. Well, by the early 30s, um, after the Napoleonic Wars, there was widespread agricultural depression, and tithes became a focus for rural unrest, which put it on the government agenda. It was clear that a far-reaching initiative was needed to move to a money system, and in 1836, the Tithe Commutation Act was passed to replace tithes in kind by more convenient money payments, tithe rent, rent charge, which would fluctuate with the price of, of, um, of grain. How was commutation carried out? The change meant a lot of work and administrating, uh, administering the Act were tithe commissioners in London, and here's a plan of the ground floor of their office in Somerset uh, House. A legion of assistant tithe commissioners and local agents carried out the practical work in the field. So first, a study had to be made to find out where tithes were still being paid in kind, which was about two-thirds of the country. Those places were then surveyed and valued to assess how much each landowner should pay. The assistant tithe commissioners travelled round the country holding parish meetings. At these, tithe owners and payers could reach a voluntary agreement or commissioners could draft an award in case of dispute. Once the amount was set, the figures were written in a formal legal document called an apportionment, accompanied by a map of these lands. Once both were signed and sealed, giving it legal force, payment started by money instead of by goods. So much of the viewing and signing of documents would have taken place in uh, this office here, Captain Dawson's uh, office in the Somerset House Tithe Commission office. Who was he? Well, Robert Kearsley Dawson 
uh, was a royal engineer, so he was trained as a military draftsman, and he was a key figure because he was superintendent of the tithe survey. He'd got a lot of survey experience in Ireland and Scotland, and he was well qualified to comment on the maps. So I wonder if perhaps this portrait, which um, comes from uh, Professor Kane and Richard Oliver's catalogue that we'll see later, shows him perhaps in the very office we saw on the plan. But all these records that went through the office, they weren't a final statement set in stone. Wider developments such as urbanisation and the advent of railways were reflected in new documents, and by the 20th century, Tide was still being paid, but the whole concept seemed more outdated than ever. The Tithe Redemption Act of 1936 started winding up the system, with the last tithe payments made in 1977. So tithe liability is no more, but the records have lasting value and interest. So what records were created? Here's an overview of the main series held here at the National Archives. The tithe maps in record series IR30 show the numbered tithe plots. The apportionments in IR29 tell us who owned and occupied property, where it lay and what the land was used for. And there are maps and apportionments for 11,785 tithe districts. So that's about 75% uh, of England and Wales. Then there's tithe files in IR18, and they've got working papers on tithe matters. There may also be later documents which show amendments and may be filed with the maps and apportionments. All these records are arranged by tithe district, which was usually parish, but could be township, hamlet, chapelry, manor, liberty, tithing, or even an extra parochial place. Some lands were exempt from tithes, usually where they were enclosed already, so tithes had been dealt with, but um, lands, uh, tithe wasn't payable on wasteland, commons, uh, crown lands, where there was public rights of way, glebe lands, uh, where tithes had never been paid, uh, and former monastic lands. So how do we find the records? Well, those at the National Archives, we use the online catalogue, which will become the main way in future to find the records, as we'll see when I talk about our current project later. They're arranged by the old county and then alphabetically by place name and England before Wales. Hampshire was then called the County of Southampton and Monmouthshire was considered to be in England, not Wales. Those are just a couple of handy tips. The document reference format, um, they're the same for the apportionment and the tithe map. The, just the IR30 and IR29 series numbers are different. The number after that, uh, here the six, refers to the county number. And then the last number is the, the unique one for the parish, here, Beconnock in Cornwall. And the tithe file, the IR18, has got its own reference, which doesn't fit with those. And at present, you can use uh, a catalogue by Professor Kane and Richard Oliver, which I have here. And I must say, I'm delighted to say that uh, Professor Roger Kane is with us in the audience. 
So this really has been the main way of accessing um, the maps, uh, finding out their, their reference and, and details about them. A research project by the University of Exeter looked at all the tide maps in detail back in the early 1990s and the results were then published in this wonderful, very large turquoise volume, which is the copy in the map room here is particularly well thumbed. And each entry describes in detail the map, its scale, the surveyor um, and all the different features on it um, and also the date. So later on, I'm going to show you an exciting development about putting all this data online. Uh, for the present, you can use this to find your, uh, find your, your maps. When you come to order your maps, you'll find that the maps were copied to microfiche for preservation reasons. For English counties alphabetically up to and including Middlesex, and they're in the map and large document reading room. Original maps are still produced for remaining English counties from Monmouthshire, which you will remember is in England for this purpose, to Yorkshire and then all Welsh <coughs> counties. If you do need to see the original map, which is usually because you need to see the colour, um, then just ask at the inquiry desk. The apportionments um, are all on microfilm and we'll hear later there's a, a project to digitise these. So let's look now at how to use the documents together with an example from Rutland. So this is a typical Ties map and it's plain, just the outline of the roads and the plots of land liable to tithes. There are numbers which are unique within the tithe district and then there's the outer boundaries of the district. And this particular map has got the signature of a certain Robert Dawson across it at the top there. There's effectively a plan of the village in an era when many towns didn't have plans themselves, uh, showing the street layout and inhabited buildings in red. And um, here the, you've got the village with the buildings in red. Here's the church and there's the local large house with plot one, which you can then see in the third column. So that shows how the plot number is the key linking these two documents together. Let's look in detail at the records now. Uh, the tithe apportionments in IR29, they're the main record of how tithes were to be commuted. Normally handwritten on parchment, that's the originals, uh, sometimes printed, they've got a standard format. First, there's a statement of the agreement or award, which this is the official text on how, how the, uh, the money commutation was, the commutation was decided. Next, you have a summary of, of the parish totals of uh, different kinds of land and general information about the district. And then the plot details, which record landowner and occupier, the name of each tithe area, which is usually a field, its acreage and land use, and any roads if they're numbered on the map. So that's the standard content within a tithe apportionment. And we'll look at a few examples. So the Richmond tithe apportionment has this rather wonderful um, apportionment of rent charge, and it's an award. In other words, the uh, tithe owners um, ag agreed about it, but you can see that it's a very formal document recording 
all the relevant dates and <coughs> figures and names of the tithe owner. Moving to the schedule, within each apportionment, the schedule gives the detail of each tithe area. Now, there's eight columns, so it's much easier to find information than if it was all scattered about. So you've got landowner, occupier, uh, here's the plot number, you've got the name and description of the premises, here's the land use, so usually arable or pasture. This is all about um, the acreage and the amount to be paid, and then of course there's a remarks column there. So that's the standard format. Once you've seen one, you'll know how to find things in other apportionments. And of course, this isn't by plot number, it's in order alphabetically by, uh, by landowner, since the document was all about um, how much each landowner had got to pay. In an average size parish, there'll be at least several um, hundred plot numbers, so perhaps a dozen at least pages. So they can be really qu quite large documents. And here, uh, this is for an area in Cornwall. We've got the farmhouse and outbuildings near Tideford in Cornwall. And here they're, they're listed, the plot number um, listed here, and it gives a description and the use of mostly arable fields. If you're actually looking for a person, the quickest way to do so is to look at the summary of the schedule, which lists the landowners alphabetically. So it gives the global figure due to the tithe owner, and then it lists the occupiers under their landowners. And my research into my Devon ancestor, Robert May, led me to this summary sheet for Down St Mary, where he's listed both as landowner on the left, so under, under M, uh, and on the right he's listed as a lessee of a landowner whose uh, surname begins with S. So he appears in both places, but with a different status. If you don't find a name here, then there's no point in looking further <coughs> in the document. Following this through, the main entry for Robert May shows the family farm of Merrifield with mainly arable fields. And here the house has got a plot number, 53, which also includes an access lane leading to it as, as a private road. So that's the apportionments. The tithe maps in IR30 provide a graphic index to the apportionment. They're plot numbers linked to numbers on the apportionments, so you can access the description in the apportionment. And they are of differing quality. Some show tithable parts only, so not the whole parish. And we have this question of first and second class, which has a specific meaning in relation to tithe maps. So looking at this... Uh, map which shows the, an area of Brentford. Well, most tithe maps are manuscript. They're drawn on parchment, and often they're the earliest large-scale mapping of many places. They may show features such as roads and buildings, and in, as in this case, we've got um, the river and the canal down, down here. And features may be labelled, uh, but they, more likely they won't be. I mean, here the only labels are Boston House up here. And, and, and the farm and the river. And Boston Manor House still looks the same now, although it's got the M4 going right by it, so it's uh, probably a lot noisier. 
At first, the tithe commissioners wanted a uniform standard for tithe maps so that they could form the basis for a, a national survey. And of course, if that had been carried through, then we would have effectively had the Ordnance Survey rather earlier than in fact happened. Um, and these were the symbols which were drawn up by Robert Dawson, um, expecting that this would take place. But then the government felt that the taxpayer wouldn't wear the expense of the survey. So the tithe commissioners couldn't insist that the maps met this ideal of using all these symbols, because the onus for making them went back on the landowner. And he might prefer to use an existing one, um, an exist existing map even if it was inaccurate, because otherwise he'd have to pay for a new one. So what we've got in the end are tithe maps which vary greatly in style, scale, size and accuracy, instead of this uh, national survey which was originally planned. All these maps, whatever they look like, were assessed by the tithe commission, um, who divided them into two classes. First class, or sealed maps, were those which the commissioners deemed sufficiently accurate to serve as legal evidence for all matters, and that's about a sixth of the total. They've got the Tithe Commission seal and a certificate of accuracy, so the word actually uh, appears there. So they were considered to be accurate as legal evidence for all, all matters, and they bear the Tithe Commission seal and signatures. Second class or unsealed maps, as the remainder are called, were signed only as the map referred to in the apportionment. So this, within this statement, there's no mention of accuracy. So they're considered to be legal evidence only for tithe commutation. And these second class maps vary from those which narrowly missed a first class seal to those which are patently unreliable, as we shall see. The Down St Mary map appears plain uh, and I've actually got some doubts about the lane because here's, here's the house that we saw, plot 53, and, and the lane. But it doesn't actually seem to go anywhere. <laughs> this is um, a good example of a plain tithe map, um, but actually the commissioners didn't have any doubts about it because it is a first-class map. So don't go by what you see. And here, by contrast, we've got a tithe map for Barnum in Sussex, which used Dawson <coughs> symbols. And often, these maps which use those symbols are very attractive. You've got details of buildings, mills, ponds, patterns of land use. But this isn't a guarantee of which class they were, and this is actually a second-class map. Moving to Wales, here, the mapmaker appears to have stood at the top of a mountain right up here, and he drew what he saw. So plots nearer to the mountain are drawn larger than those at a distance. <laughs> so plot 30 up here, near to the surveyor, um, appears rather larger than plot 3 down here, but the apportionment shows that 30 is 471 acres and 3 is 376 acres, which doesn't add up. And then if you look at the plot next to 3, which is 4, that's only 88 acres, which you would think would be very small, but really it's nearly as large as, uh, as 3 on the map. So this is an extreme uh, example which shows the need for caution when you're examining this evidence. Moving on to the tithe files, they contain working papers of the commission and there's one for each place 
regardless of where the tithe was still payable there. There's only one copy of these um, available at the National Archives. They're generally more about process than people. And some files are simply covers because they got weeded out in the, um, in the early 20th century. In others, especially where there's a um, case of dispute, there may be draft documents and maps, minutes of meetings, reports on the state of agriculture in the parish. That's so whether the land was good, things like access to markets and the state of the roads, all of which, of course, affected farmers' ability to pay tithe. Here, the long and narrow parish of Dalbury and Lees, we are told, in Derbyshire, is noted as having roads which are almost impassable. But then we're told that uh, they've recently been improved. So that could be a useful piece of information. And here's an example of a document bearing the signatures of uh, the rector uh, and all the landowners with rather an impressive collection of seals. Ties files are handwritten and often hard to read. Don't worry, we're not going to have a detailed look at that but they can have very uh, useful information. On the Down St Mary tithe file, I found um, a letter referring to Robert May, where his neighbour was complaining that the new, uh, the new system um, meant that he was paying too much uh, and Robert May was paying too little. I mentioned that uh, most places have experienced changes in the landscape over time. So who owned the land, the way it was divided up and used. And when these affected how much was paid, they may be recorded in an altered apportionment and map. Common cause for new documents was the construction of a well railway through the parish. Um, the document only is, um, shows the area of change, so it would only show the portion of the railway, perhaps, or the, the playing field, whatever the change, change was for. There isn't a map, map and apportionment, but just for that bit. Some parishes have got a number of these, others don't have any. But where you do find them, they can be a useful update if you're looking at a particular plot in, in its history. For Down St Mary, uh, an altered apportionment shows a change which affected Robert May, and new plots were created by subdividing existing ones, and they added letters to the existing numbers. So here, 468 was divided up into 468A, and here Robert May has 468B, which appears on the map here as the main field of a farm called Higher Living. Um, and it's, the, it's, it's here, and 468A is divided off there. So altered apportionments can help to cross the time bridge between about 1840 and right up to the 1930s, you'll find information. So these then are the main tithe survey documents. Beyond these, there are many instances of, of reuse of how important this survey became in the national consciousness. There are copies of whole documents, or more commonly just part of them, among estate archives. And here we've got the records of Crown Estate, and there's a whole series of, of maps of the part of the Crown Estate, the parish which was Crown Estate. And for a while too, the plot numbers were used for general reference, so you'll find them in land conveyances and sales particulars. 
And quite often um, you will find reference to a first-class map, but it doesn't mean it was very good. I mean, it was, does mean it was very good, but it means it in the sense of it's a first-class tithe map. So the whole um, existence of these documents carried on into other uses and other documents. Just to look at who holds these, these documents, well, three copies were made of each apportionment and map. One was for the Tithe Commission, one was for the diocesan records, so that's representing the interests of the tithe owner, and one was to be kept in the parish chest for tithe payers' use. So we've got the uh, Tithe Commission copy. The local record offices quite often have one or other or both of the diocesan and parish copies. Um, diocesan record offices sometimes still have them and parish churches sometimes still have them. In the case of Wales, the National Library of Wales has got a whole set and is currently hoping to, to digitise them. And we do in fact hold a parish copy, unusually, um, among records of Crown Estate. This map was sent to the local church as the parish copy um, and this form um, is from the Tithe Commission Office and it says it's to the, the incumbent and church wardens. But there was no incumbent when it landed, uh, landed on the mat, as it were. So it was given to the, the landowner um, for safekeeping, which was Crown Estate. So we've ended up with two copies, rather, rather strangely. But it means you can see the paperwork and what a parish copy can look like. And here, the receipt form that the parish was supposed to send back is left blank because there was no incumbent to fill it in. Tide records at the National Archives relate to England and Wales. Similar records for Scotland, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland are held by their national record offices and tithe was fairly universal, so you do get also examples from across Europe. And here is one from France, courtesy of Professor Kane, and here's another one from Switzerland, the Bern archives, um, which shows just how similar it is with the um, tithe plots and the landowners and, and acreage. We don't have any of these European records, um, um, I should state, but they're just examples of how, how universal um, tithe was. Much has been written about tithe, um, and there's a, a detailed bibliography. This slide is, is in your handout. And I want to tell you about new developments here and elsewhere. Around the country, in local record offices, there are lots of projects. Um, and again, this slide is in your handout. I must say this is just an, a snapshot of what's available and what's being planned around the country um, at this moment. If you're interested in a particular place, I suggest that you keep checking um, the websites of your relevant uh, local record office there. Now, at the National Archives, we've got several projects afoot. One of them relates to apportionments. The originals, as I said, were microfilmed some decades ago, and they're currently being scanned as part of a, a project to digitise films from the reading rooms to give wider access. So we hope that they'll be available via docs, Documents Online, our, um, our digitised document system on the website, later this year. We're also 
enhancing descriptions as a byproduct of, of the main project on tide maps that I want to tell you about. So here's an example of a description before, which doesn't tell you very much, and an example of um, a description after enhancement, which actually enables you to find, um, find the item and explains what this P up here is, which um, is actually parish, but it, it, it's rather more informative here. It gives the valuers um, the date, exact date, and also links to the other documents. So much more useful altogether. And this is a byproduct of our main ties map description project. And the good news for us is that the authors of the catalogue, Professor Kane and Dr Oliver, have very kindly allowed us to convert information from their database on which this book was based. Um, and you can see an example, a page from the database there. So this book remains a vital tool for researchers because it's got much more information than just the catalogue of maps. When I say just the catalogue, the catalogue is, is, is very important. But the summaries for each county, it describes the different situations and academic analyses of the survey process and products. So this is going to remain a vital tool. What our current project does is to make the information about each map more easily accessible and searchable. I want to heartily thank, in addition to the authors, my technical colleague, uh, Matt Hilliard, with whom I'm working on converting the material from this um, into this, which is the behind-the-scenes version. Um, um, but you can see that's what I'm working on. That's what's on my desk at the moment. Um, and again, the, the before, um, what's actually in the catalogue, for, still for many counties, because this project is in process, is that, which doesn't tell you very much. It leaves you with an awful lot of questions, um, but the converted example here for, for Dunstable <coughs> gives you a complete description um, of what's on the map, who made it, the scale, and again, the links to the other documents, um, the exact date. And there's a field here which means that the national grid data, which is in the uh, Kane and Oliver data, um, has, Matt has managed to convert that into georeference. So we can later um, add that to um, our clickable map interface, which should enable you to um, access via clickable map onto these um, catalogue descriptions, something for the future. But the data is, is, is going to be there. And here's the map that we've been looking at, the description of, of Dunstable. Um, thank you to my colleague Andrew Jaynes for this particular one. Um, very nice town plan. So how far have we got? Well, nearly a quarter of counties have had enhancements and we hope to, uh, to finish this project um, this, this coming year. So there are many benefits to the project. First of all, you can actually find your map preference, which could be a good idea. At present, it's very hard to do. You get a, a proper academically-based description courtesy of, of Kane and Oliver. It warns where the map only shows a tithable area, so you're not expecting to get perhaps the whole parish, and it also states where a map is so small that it's been drawn on the apportionment. First-class maps are denoted, the surveyor's name, where that's known, and also information about earlier maps, um, perhaps where it mentions, you know, Squire Smith's map of 1790 was used, so you could then go and look to see if, if that exists still somewhere. somewhere. I've also been adding altered apportionment information um, from a project that here some decades ago where it says how many apportionments and what dates. So I'm adding that as I go along, but we've only got 13 counties of 
55. So if anyone wants to work on the remaining counties, do, do let me know. And a real improvement has been dating. Um, the Inland Revenue gave us the documents simply dated to the reign of Victoria, one of our longest reigning monarchs, as we know. Um, they've now been redated to range from the 18th century um, right down to with later copies and a portion, altered apportionments to the 20th century. And each particular map has got much closer dating, usually to the year, sometimes to the actual day, thanks to the, the Cain and Oliver project. This map is undated, but it's a typical 18th century estate map which has been reused for tithe purposes. And our old friend, Captain Dawson, has signed this. We don't know either when the pipe here was added to the, the grinning face in the car cartouche. But this is obviously much earlier than the, the tithe survey. Here, uh, an estate map of Atlow in Derbyshire, um, of, we know it's dated here, 1775, has been changed to become the tithe map and various details crossed out. Um, so this is actually dated to 1775 and then it was reused later. So this new online presentation of tithe apportionments and of tithe map descriptions is going to open up new views on the data. One will now be able to easily search for specific features nationwide and I've been surprised to see, noted, a number of druidic altars, elven pits and gurgos, which I gather are Cornish mining features. So I foresee forthcoming doctorates on the instance of menageries, toll houses and lime kilns in early Victorian times. So what kind of information can one find in the tithe surveys? Well, they tell many tales about people and places. There's a wide range of people found, um, from titled landowner to yeoman farmer to humble cottager. And you can get a sense of their interrelationships, who was renting from whom, who were neighbours. Particular types of people mentioned are tithe owners, to whom tithe was paid, they're named in the apportionment. So this might be the rector, or it might be a secular owner, such as an Oxbridge College or a member of the aristocracy. The tithe survey gives information on most landowners in a parish rather than the single, narrow, the single family uh, focus of estate surveys, so that's more useful. Um, although the occupier was often the owner, the survey's range included farmers leasing fields and those who simply rented a cottage and garden. And women's names appear, uh, sometimes where the full name is given, so you'd get Mary Smith, um, or where there's an initial, sometimes it actually says um, the status of the women, so whether they're spinster or married woman. And other parishioners may be mentioned, particularly in the tithe files, where they gave evidence on the matters of dispute. And mapmakers, too, we'll, we'll come on to look at in more detail. So some examples of these. Where the tithe owner lived in the parish, he's listed in the schedule of apportionment. And here, the vicar is the Reverend Patrick Bronte, father of the famous writer sisters. And he's listed under H, which is for Haworth, because he was the, the vicar of Haworth there. In, that's in, in the apportionment here. Unusually, the text of a 17th century will was written in a tithe apportionment. At Stowe in Buckinghamshire, Sir Richard Temple probably thought he was doing a good thing by leaving money in his will to pay the tithe. But there was no clause to allow for inflation. By 1844, the vicar here refused to accept it. 
and uh, he decided he was due to an increase and the commissioner actually agreed with him and the, the rate went up 300%. William Wordsworth owned a small arable field, quarry field, um, plot number 59 in, in Grasmere, so that's just here with a nice view over the lake. Um, and here you can see his occupier, uh, William Richardson. And looking at tithe owners, here's a map of Kew Green. You get their names written on the map. So here we've got the King of Hanover, it says. Actually, in this case, the Office of, of Forests and Woods owned it, but William I kind of overlooked that and gave it to his brother, who was then the Duke of Cumberland, but in 1837 uh, ascended to the throne of Hanover. So that's how this has happened here. And also, you'll notice uh, property belonging to a previous Duchess of Cambridge. Many other people's names appear on maps, and this is an example from a Cornish map where Joel Pedler's Smith's shop is found on the tithe map for Beconic at a crossroads between two parishes. What do the records tell us about map makers and map making? Most common names on maps are those of the map makers. And here, two Devonport surveyors, so that's East Cotton Fry's, put some rather tasteful advertising on the tithe map they made of Sheviok and in Cornwall. Turquoise Book gives a useful list of map makers whose names are noted on around two-thirds of tithe maps, and these will become searchable online. And I listed some particularly interesting names I found in connection with the tithe surveys. Horatio Merriweather, Henry Bushell, George Garlick, Abiza Rowe, Samuel Surplus, and Uriah Vines. I'm sure there are many more. Now, mostly these were local men, um, but we get the impression that firms of surveyors were responding to the calls to make maps, sometimes from a distance away. And some of the Cornish maps were made by a Liverpool firm. And there's also some famous firms, such as the Driver Brothers and the Cluttons. The Ordnance Survey was also a map maker, interestingly. It had come into existence as a military body sometime before this survey, um, but it could also bid for commissions to make um, tithe maps. And this is evident in parts of Lancashire and Yorkshire, particularly where they had offices at that point in, in Skipton, and among other places. So the tithe survey work may have been used towards published ordnance survey maps. And again, the tithe files may have evidence um, of how much each mapmaker was paid for doing the work. I was intrigued, though, to find on the tithe file for St Minver in Cornwall a letter from a mapmaker who'd been paid to make three first-class maps. He was disappointed to find that only one of his maps was considered first-class, which is the one that we've got here. Dawson apparently refused to seal the other copies as first-class because he said that they were grossly inaccurate, and he cited distortion and irregular expansion. So the three copies, so-called, may not be identical. The sheer number of maps, nearly 12,000, allows us to see the state of local map making at this date. So mostly they're manuscript maps, so this reflects an era when maps were made as needed for a specific purpose rather than for continued general reference. The most often used scale was one inch to three chains. You do still sometimes get local scales, so you know Hampshire chain, etc., used. Um, and quite often the scale bar, sometimes um, very elaborate as, as here, um, was put on the maps. 
There's evidence of some stamping of names and numbers, which was a way of speeding things up and making, making the result more legible. And <coughs> a few of the maps are lithographs, mostly produced by Standage and Company, maybe where the need for extra copies made lithography cheaper than copying by hand, or perhaps it was decided to sell copies to the public to recoup the expense of making the map. And here at Philly in Devon, which here's a first-class map, and we can actually see construction lines in, in red all across it with um, little notes on them. And also the map maker has used hill shading to try and convey an impression here of the lie of the land. At Linstead Magna in Suffolk, the church was used as so often as the high point from which to take angles, so all the construction lines converge on the church here. So this allowed accurate construction of the survey. And this map also has a public right-of-way marked. <coughs> this map of Effingham in Surrey was sent by the Tithe Commissioners in 1842 to the Ordnance Survey Department as an example of the detail required in a tithe map. And their letter that went with this said they really wanted a plain map, probably at uh, three inches to a mile. So that shows what they were really looking for. However, Many mapmakers added decorative touches to their maps, in borders, cartouches, scale bar, and compass indicator. And here at Frittenden in Kent, the, the, tie, the little church is shown pictorially here. The rest of the map is quite plain, which shows charity lands and glebe lands, but we've got this rather nice picture of the church. And some maps are themselves works of art. Here's perhaps one of my favourite uh, favorite maps. So it's a beautiful watercolour of the landscape and shows just how many landscape features can be seen in these maps. So you may get things like village greens and market squares, <coughs> burial grounds, canals, towpaths, railways, country houses complete with gardens as here, and, and parks. So this is the Beconic Park, etc. And there's even a pheasantry here, and um, stables and, and kennels. So landscape features most often noted on the maps um, which we'll look at examples of are fields, woods, roads, buildings, towns and, uh, and industry. And um, I'll give some examples of, of these. Fields and land use are of course what's most often shown on these maps because that's what the Tithe Survey was about. And you can get evidence where old open field systems persisted. Often you get field boundaries with hedgerows styles and gates, and sometimes hedgerow ownership. The apportionments are a really good source of field names, which of course the Ordnance Survey didn't go on to show. And orchards, plantations, hop gardens and market gardens are recorded because they might be subject to an extra rent charge. Um, woodland is often shown as here on this uh, map of Thryburg in Yorkshire uh, because um, sometimes, in some places, there was an extra tithe payable on, on timber, and quite often it's shown by actually putting every single tree on, on the map. This also has the hall, and there's stables and kennels, and somewhere else there's an, an ice house. Moorland um, and rough grazing were also noted because they got a lower rate um, for, for valuation than farmland. So here, uh, on a very, very large map of, of Dartmoor, you've got Princeton, you've got the prison, but they've also shown um, these uh, little tours very pictorially here. You see the vast expanse of, of Dartmoor. Roads and footpaths were exempt from ties because they were unproductive land, 
but they're often shown on tithe maps and sometimes they're numbered, as we saw with the Down St Mary example. Here in Stratfold in Staffordshire, uh, the map records that the ancient public <coughs> carriageway was stopped up, um, so which ran across here, why there's a, a gap. It was stopped up by order of the magistrates at quarter session. So knowing that, you could then go and look in local records to, to actually follow it up. And the tithe files can describe the condition of the roads and, and maps sometimes also show Roman roads, occupation roads, things like turnpike roads and toll gates. So they can sometimes be included. Another feature which didn't particularly affect tithe was buildings. And they're rarely shown pictorially like that Kent church because the tax wasn't about buildings. And on the Richmond map here, uh, we've got the, the pagodas just shown by a circle and, and the legend there. But you have got the, uh, the footprints of buildings, such as the Royal Laundry here. Buildings shown in red were inhabited. That was the general convention, and those in grey weren't. So you usually get a farmhouse in red with the outbuildings in grey. As well as houses, you can get find unusual buildings, such as um, customs houses, ice houses, dovecots, uh, lighthouses. Um, even amphitheatres. More usually, there's the, the Great House, and here um, the English Heritage House, Burton Agnes in Yorkshire, is shown. Um, you can actually see there's uh, the curves of the, uh, the bay windows facing out across the lawn. Um, so this was built in 1609, still held by the Boynton family, and Sir Henry Boynton is shown here as owner of the mansion. The Cane and Oliver data mentions very many features of gardens and parks. So you get things like um, obelisks and monuments and follies and quite a lot of uh, dog memorials, apparently. The use of block pan to show buildings can be deceptive, as this map of Fountains Abbey shows, because here's the abbey, and you would expect it perhaps to be uh, full, of, uh, full of monks going about their, their daily lives. But of course, buildings weren't the point of the survey. Um, and in, in fact, um, they didn't affect the tax paid, so probably more tithe was due be here because the sheep were wandering about the ruins. Um, so you just need to bear that in mind with a bit of care when looking at these. This map of Bradford makes the point that tithes could still be payable in urban areas, although, of course, many now urban areas were fairly rural before 1850. And there are tithe records for some parts of London and Manchester and Birmingham. And in Brighton, apparently, there were still a few care houses left um, at the time of the tithe survey. Here in Bradford, um, this is typical of many city maps. You've just got um, no detail in the, in the built-up areas, just the tithe plots here. In this example, there are back-to-back -back houses seen here. And linked to other records, um, in this particular case, I managed to find in Paul or Union correspondence, which is held here in the series MH12 and has recently been catalogued in detail, um, several letters. One which was from the Paul or commissioners to the tithe office saying, oh, please can this be a first class map? And the letter back, which, um, which basically says, sorry, no. And these descriptions are, are, um, are all enhanced in the catalogue now, so it's well worth having a look to see if there are other records here not within the tithe survey, which actually add to the knowledge that we have of, of these records. 
beyond towns, just on the outskirts, we can get some unusual structures. So here we've got the Doncaster Race Course, um, and it's got its winning post and grandstand here, all in good view of the Deaf and Dumb Institution. So uh, all sorts of landscapes and, and structures, built structures, feature. And then, of course, industry, our last point. There's plenty of evidence of industry on tithe maps. This is Droylsden, which is in Greater Manchester. But even in, in, in the time of the tithe survey, it was already a seat of industry. There were cotton mills, um, dye works, colliery, and also the transport system to support all this, this industry. And the roads and the canals were given, given plot numbers there. Also here, just out of interest, is this uh, Moravian community of Fairfields, um, which is rather famous, and it's, it's even got its um, chapel shown. But beyond, beyond industrial areas of the country and beyond, um, beyond cities, there was a lot of other major industry, particularly mining, which could be for coal, but it could be for other minerals, so tin, um, particularly in Cornwall. And mine workings are often shown on the maps. Although most industry was still small scale, such as lime kilns on the coast, uh, small quarries, and, and stone pits here at Bronswell in Lincolnshire. So we've got one here and one by these cottages here in a, in a landscape which is otherwise very rural with the typical um, manor house here. And the church, which is actually drawn pictorially here with a gentleman in top hat but shirt sleeves and he's carrying a shovel, so presumably he's digging a grave. To sum up, the records of the Tithe Survey were just one product of the Victorian administrative revolution. They're contemporary with the mid-century censuses of population, the beginnings of civil registration, poor law reform, and the genesis of large-scale ordnance survey maps. Used with other records of the period, the Tithe Survey can help to create a picture of life at the beginning of Victoria's reign, can be used to learn more about communities at a time before the effects were really felt of large-scale industry and the Great Railway Age. The expansion of many cities was to take place within a few years of the Tithe Surveys, so these served then as a major record of a landscape of fields and woods soon to be overrun by brick and stone. And I hope if I haven't shown somewhere that was of interest to you that perhaps this talk and news about all these access improvements have inspired you to go away and do your, your own study. Thank you. This event was recorded live on the 16th of February, 2012, at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.